Well, good morning. It is good to see everyone here. Um, if this is your first time with us, welcome. We are a new church here in Westerville. Uh, so that comes with a lot of fun and exciting things. It also comes with awkward moments. So just show us patience as we, like a child, learn to walk. So it is so good to see a lot of you. And if you are new, um, we got like a little grant, so to speak, from our examination to pick up some mugs with our church stuff on it. Please take those. I don't want to keep lugging them. So if you haven't grabbed one, please just snag one on the way out. You don't have to pay anything for that. Just, just take it. Um, so I, uh, one of the things I like to do is listen to podcasts, especially if I'm doing yard work. And yesterday, the past couple weekends have been weekends of a lot of yard work. It's getting to be nicer weather, loving it. Um, but what I, what I do on mow the grass or I'm trying to mulch or do some edging is I'll listen to podcasts. And one podcast I've been listening to a lot recently, just binging it, is called Luther in Real Time. So it's about the reformer, Martin Luther. And 500 years ago was this Protestant Reformation. And what they're doing, this Luther in Real Time, is on the day, exactly the day, 500 years ago, they'll release a podcast explaining what happened, and it'll be like a, a reenactment. And so it's really well done. Um, highly recommend it. Take a chance to listen to it. But for those of you who don't know, on October 31st, Halloween of the year 1517, Martin Luther, this guy, nailed to the doors of the Wittenberg Castle Church his what's called 95 theses. What are those? So these 95 theses are 95 disagreements that he had with the Roman Catholic Church. And it was mostly around the sale of indulgences, where if you pay a certain amount of money, then your sins can be forgiven, or someone who's already passed away their sins, and maybe they spend less time in what Roman Catholics believe to be purgatory. And so he had a big issue with this, rightfully so. And so he went to the door, nailed these 95 theses to the door, which it wasn't uncommon to nail disagreements to the door. He wasn't original in that, but some of his thoughts um, in that time were surprising to the Roman Catholic Church. So that was in 1517. The next few years, he continues to write, and it begins to gain steam. People start to listen to him, and, oh, this guy seems pretty brash, and he seems to really believe what he's saying. He's pointing to the scriptures. Maybe we should give it a little bit of a listen, and it gains a lot of momentum. And so on January 28th, 1521, we see what's called the beginning of the Diet of Worms, which, if you just read it, it looks like a diet of worms. So it looks like a really strange diet, which maybe you'll find 500 years later. But anyways, so this diet of worms, it's, what it is is it has nothing to do with what you eat. It's actually the pope saying, hey, we need to have a formal council to talk about what this cat's saying. Because he's starting to really create some waves, and we need to call him to recant. So that starts January 28th, 1521. It's a formal assembly in the imperial free city of Worms in Germany. So the Diet, a formal assembly of Worms, where it's located. It's initiated by Pope Leo X, and it was in response to his writings. And now, on April 17th, 1521, he calls him to recant all of his writings. He's got all his books on a table, and he says, are those your books? Luther says, yes, they're not only mine, but I wrote them. He says, okay, now are you willing to recant? And Luther says, can I have a day to think about it? That was April 17th of 1521. 
on April 18th, exactly 500 years ago to this day, Luther goes back into the Diet of Worms and he gives this response. He says to them, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. He says, I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. He says, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. He's like, I can't do any other. And Luther understood that faith alone in Jesus is sufficient to save. However, that faith must be placed in the right Jesus. The Roman Catholic Church would have said, yeah, we agree with you that you have to have faith in Jesus. And Luther would say, well, I think you've got the gospel wrong. So you have to know the right Jesus. And he, he, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that faith alone isn't sufficient. I'm heartily, heartily, not hardly, heartily agreeing with that. However, I'm just trying to clarify that it has to be faith alone in the right Jesus. And the passage that we're getting into today will help us see a, a better a more clear, give us a better grasp picture of who the real Jesus is. And so as we go through, I think, and I, I hope, we'll see that as Jesus reveals who he is, we must respond appropriately. Jesus, throughout this passage that we're going over that Alex just read, he reveals himself in a few different ways. And there are responses to that. So as Jesus reveals himself in the scriptures, we must respond accordingly. So this passage, like I said, will give us a better grasp of who the real Jesus is, but it'll also help us have a, a clearer understanding of what his heart is toward those who are in the midst of suffering. And so as a background, we have been marching through the book of Mark since December. And so we've been going passage by passage, trying to let the scriptures unfold themselves, and we are finding ourselves now at the end of chapter 6 here. Now, Mark is the first of four Gospels written. It's written by a man named John Mark. It was written in the 50s or the 60s AD while he was in Rome. He's writing to the Roman church. And the theme that we've been harping on week in, week out, is that it's God restoring his wayward people. God restoring his wayward people. God has had a people since the beginning of creation, and the consistent pattern is that they go wayward, they go astray. And so now in the gospel, we see God restoring his wayward people. Last week, um, we were gifted to have um, Rick Gromlick here to preach from Proclamation Church. And what we saw was that the, Jesus sees this crowd who's following after him and he has compassion on them. And his compassion leads to him teaching them many things. And then after teaching, he then acts and he then feeds over 5,000 people. So it's 5,000 men, but that likely would be over 10,000 if you include the women and the children. So we see Jesus last week having compassion, teaching out of that compassion, and then acting out of that. Now this week we have two points, and you'll find them in your bulletin. 
Um, so if you see the scripture there on the next page, you'll see the two points. It is Jesus approaches and Jesus, or excuse me, and the people respond. Jesus approaches and the people respond. So before we hop into that first one, let's pray. Father, it is a gift to be able to gather around your word. And we are grateful that all of the promises in your word are yes and amen in Christ. Help us to see the true Jesus today more clearly in this passage. Help me speak clearly and where I don't, Holy Spirit, you clarify it for those in in the congregation listening. God, we pray for Proclamation Church as they continue to proclaim the gospel. Thank you for Rick coming here last week to be a a blessing and to, to feed us spiritually. Lord, we pray for Covenant Community Church in Newark as they are a gospel light there. And we pray that as they continue to proclaim the gospel, that they would see fruit. Pray also for Life Point Church here in Westerville, that they would proclaim the gospel, and insofar as they do that, that you would continue to bless them and let them see gospel fruit. And Lord, we also put before you Watermark Church over in Worthington. Thank you for these churches that are gospel comrades, As we go through this world, we pray that the gospel throughout churches, not only here in central Ohio, but throughout the world, that these churches would proclaim the gospel and that new life would be had. We trust you to lead us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So two points. Jesus approaches and the people respond. So that first point, Jesus approaches. We see this. In verse 47, right when it starts, that Jesus, well into the night, the boat, because right when Jesus finished um, feeding these 5,000, he sent the disciples on a boat. He says, you go ahead of me, and I'll catch up to you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dismiss the crowd. And so this, the disciples are now on this boat, and Jesus is catching up to them, and it's well into the night, and the boat was in the middle of the sea. Now, Jesus is approaching his people. Now, there has to be something that we recognize, that you cannot approach something unless you're separated from it. So there's a separation there between the disciples and Jesus that we don't want to overlook in this passage. The disciples are on a boat in the middle of the sea. So the middle of the sea is the furthest point from any land. Think of a circle right there in the middle. It's the furthest point from any side. My my dad used to share cheesy jokes with me or ask me cheesy questions. We'd drive past the cemetery. He'd say, how many people are in that cemetery? I'd like frantically try to count. And I, I don't, I'd throw a guess out there. I'd say, nope, all of them. I'm like, okay, thanks, Dad. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> then he would ask a, a question, how far can a dog run into the woods? I'd say, I don't know, all the way? And say, nope, only halfway. Because once he gets halfway, he's now running out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I get, to, I get to pull these out now that, now that I'm a dad. But the, this boat is in the middle of the sea. Okay, it's the furthest point from any of the land, okay? And with it being in the middle of the sea, it's a vulnerable place. It's where a lot of storms can rise up. We've already seen this in Mark 4, and we're seeing it again now with strong winds. It's a, it's a strong storm that is coming on the disciples. And so these disciples, being in the boat in the middle of the sea, they're vulnerable. They're separated from Jesus. 
They are the furthest point from land, and they're in distress. And unless something changes with this storm, they're headed toward death. And Jesus, we see, is alone on the land. You see on the second half of verse 47? He was alone on the land. So, Jesus, safe and secure on this land, sees his disciples in a vulnerable place, fighting a wind, fighting a storm, and they are in distress. And in a similar way, just jumping straight to the gospel already, God and us, we are separated. God is in a, a safe place. He is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. He is in no fear of any sort of judgment. But we have sinned, and we are separate from God, and we are in a vulnerable place. We are far from him, and we are in distress. And, and unless we respond to the gospel, we are headed toward more death. So we already see a parallel with the disciples being in this vulnerable place in the middle of the sea and us being in a vulnerable place in our sin. But thankfully, in verse 48, we see that Jesus is aware. It's not just that they're out there and he's acknowledging it. Jesus is aware of their distress. He saw them straining, as you see in verse 48. The ESV says that they were making headway painfully. The CSB, NIV, and the NASB say straining. The King James Version says they were toiling. The original Greek there is a little bit more emphatic. It says they were, that, that word there is the word for torture or torment. We see the same word used in Mark 5 when the demon-possessed man comes out of the caves and he acknowledges who Jesus is. and He says, are you here to torment us already? Don't torment us. Send us into the pigs. So it's that same word being used with regard to that demon-possessed man and the way that the disciples are fighting against this wind. So they're separate from Jesus. They're distressed. They're being tormented by this wind. And the wind was against them. Now, they were fighting. They wanted to move forward. And in the same way, a lot of us today are trying to move forward in our walk with the Lord. Maybe you're a Christian and you are trying to walk in holiness, but you consistently feel like you're walking uphill or you're going against a wind. That's just part of our sinful nature. I'm going to read um, a passage from Romans 7. This is the Apostle Paul writing. And see if you don't pick up on some of those themes that we just talked about going into almost like a spiritual headwind. Paul says this in Romans 7, For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. Jesus is aware of the distressed state of his disciples fighting against this storm in the middle of the sea. I encourage you this morning, as you try to grow in your walk with Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're trying to become more and more like him, one degree of glory at a time, he sees you 
He recognizes that you are fighting a sinful nature, and until he comes back, we will continue to fight against this sinful nature. If you fall, be encouraged that Jesus says that whoever would confess their sin and repent, well, he will forgive. He is, the just, he is just and justifier. So he will not cast you away if you find yourself fighting and, and sometimes falling. So be encouraged by that. But then Jesus approaches them. So, okay, we saw verse 47. Uh, they're in the middle of the sea. He's alone on land. We see 48 where he sees them straining. Now at the, the backside of 48, we see him approaching them. And he approaches them when? Very early in the morning. Some translations will say the fourth watch of the night. So this is Roman time. They're, they're keeping track of the night in the way that Romans do it. And they do it in three-hour increments. And so the first watch of the night is from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. The second being 9 p.m. to midnight. The third being midnight to 3 a.m. The fourth watch of the night being 3 a.m. until 6 a.m. And then they start their day at 6 a.m., so to speak. So this was the fourth watch of the night. It was very early in the morning, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Now, something to recognize that Jesus saw them. He saw them straining. He's on the land. They're in the middle of the sea. He sees them, but it's not until the fourth watch. It's not until late into the night, very early into the morning, that he decides to go out and walk on the water. And so maybe you're in some kind of headwind today. Maybe you're in some kind of valley, some kind of um, trial. And you feel like God hasn't responded quick enough. I encourage you, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. He will rescue you. But what does he do? He doesn't take another boat out to the disciples, but he walks on water. He walks on water. And this is, this is magnificent, not only because like, walking on water is amazing, but I think sometimes as Christians we can read that and it can become kind of, oh yeah, Jesus walked on water. That, like, this is big news. So first off, he walks on water and he walks in the middle of the sea, arguably the deepest part. So there could be no question like, oh, maybe he's on, a, I don't know, like a shallower area, and maybe there's a rock there. Like, no, this is the middle of the sea. He's walking. But it's also significant because in the Old Testament, in Job 9, 8, <clears throat> we read that God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. God alone does that. And so for him to tread on the waves of the sea, for him to walk on water, the Sea of Galilee. This is a big deal. It's Jesus revealing who he is, that he is divine, that he is the God of the Old Testament. James Edwards put it this way. He said, for in the Old Testament, only God can walk on water. In walking on the water toward the disciples, Jesus walks where only God can walk. And then we read that he wanted to pass by them which it took me a little bit of extra study on this when it comes to this thing. So I'm like, why would he want to go past them? That seems kind of odd. Like, they're over here. You just want to walk past Like, what are you doing? Going to another part of the sea to see the storm from a different angle? Or... But no, the, looking, looking more into it, commentators say it's not that he wanted to pass by them as if go past them. He wanted to pass in view of them. It's like saying, like, hey, hon, like, well, let's stop at Tim. Let's, let's pass by Tim Hortons on the way home. Like, you want to go to it. And so 
Jesus wants to pass by them, but, but why? So he's already revealed a little bit of who he is by walking on the water. But now he wants to pass by them so that they see him walking on the water. And the author, John Mark, is intentional here to use the verbiage pass by. There's significance to that, to pass by. Because where, did, where else did God pass by his people? We see this twice in the Old Testament. We see it at Mount Sinai where the Lord passes by Moses to reveal his name and his compassion. And we see it at Mount Oreb where the Lord passes by Elijah to reveal his presence. So twice in the Old Testament, we see God passing by that same verbiage, that same terminology, passing by his people to reveal who he is. So now Jesus, walking on water, is revealing who he is. He's walking where only God can walk. And then he wants to pass by his disciples to make it clear to them, but then Mark uses that terminology to make it clear to the reader that God in this moment is again passing by. And so now that Jesus has in several ways uh, revealed himself, we now get to see the people's response. So that's the second point in your bulletin. So we see that Jesus has approached. There was a separation there. And now we get to see the response. And what we see in verse 49, we see, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. So the first response is that the disciples are absolutely terrified. They think it's a ghost. I mean, you think if if it's a storm in the middle of the sea, the visibility probably isn't great. And what they would... um, think in those in pagan times is if there's a huge storm going on that it might be the god of the winds or the god of the seas that's causing this and so they see this figure walking and they're probably terrified they are terrified so the text is but they're probably terrified because they probably think that it's maybe the the god of the sea or some kind of ghost that may be having control over the tempest that's going on and so they're absolutely horrified when they see him but then he walks toward them and what does he say have courage. Don't be afraid. It is I. So the question is, as he's walking toward them, and he says these words, have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Why should they have courage? Why should they not be afraid? There's at least two reasons. And the first is that he's done this before. He's calmed the seas before. We saw it in Mark 4. There's the big storm going on. Jesus is asleep at the bottom of the boat. They come get him, and he comes out. Why are you so worried? And he calms the storm. So when he says, don't be afraid, it's I. It's me, the one who calms the sea. You don't have to be afraid. But the second reason is because the way that Jesus says it is significant. He uses the the Greek terminology, ego I me. What does that mean? Ego, I mean, means I am. He's saying, don't be afraid, I am. Which is reminiscent of Exodus. When Moses is talking to the burning bush, he's talking to God, and God says, I want you to go into Egypt and set my people free. And Jesus says, when I go, what am I supposed to tell them? Who am I supposed to say sent me? He says, tell them I am sent you. 
Jesus, when he uses that same terminology, ego I mean, he's saying, I'm that God. I'm that God. You don't have to be afraid. Not only have I calmed the seas before, not only am I clearly divine, I'm walking in the deepest part of the ocean. However, I'm also the God of the Old Testament that you and your fathers have believed in. I am. In Pillar New Testament commentary, it says, as in the forgiveness of sins and in his power over nature, walking on the lake identifies Jesus unmistakably with God. This identification is reinforced when Jesus says, take courage, it is I. In Greek, it is I, ego I, me, is identical with God's self-disclosure to Moses in Exodus 3, 14. Thus, Jesus not only walks in God's stead, as we saw in Job 9, 8, thus not only does Jesus walk in God's stead, but he also takes his name. Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples, and they were absolutely terrified initially, but then as soon as they see him come closer, and he says, it's me, you don't have to worry, and he gets in the boat, and the wind stops, then their attitude shifts, and it says that they were astounded. So they go from terror to absolute awe, rightfully so. So it says in verse 51, that he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded in verse 52 because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. So these disciples who are separated from Jesus are in distress. And then Jesus shows up and all of a sudden everything's at peace, which just as a application point, all the more reason for us to pursue intimacy with Christ. When we are with him, you could be going through the greatest storm and still at peace. But when we're separated from him, we're in distress. So I encourage you, don't waste the storms that, that you may find yourself in, but even in the storms, pursue a close and abiding relationship with Jesus. But they were astounded because they misunderstood. They didn't understand about the loaves. Now, when I was first reading this passage, I was like, that seems like a totally random thought that John Mark threw in there. They're astounded because they didn't understand about the loaves. And of course, the loaves right before when he feeds the 5,000 with five uh, loaves and two fish. And so what, what does that have to do? Well, throughout the gospel of Mark, you see all these miracles taking place, right? It's like miracle after miracle after miracle. And what he's doing is he's making a statement that he is divine, that he has power over these things. And so when he then takes these loaves, these five loaves and, and two fish that would barely feed a few people, and feeds 5,000 people, arguably far more than 5,000 if you include the, the women and the children. Jesus is making another point that he's divine. That, hey, I am the Son of God. I can, I can feed thousands of people with very little. I'm divine. I am the one that you need to be putting your trust. I am the coming Messiah, the one that you've been hoping for. He's making these points, and the disciples here are absolutely astounded because they didn't understand that he was divine. They just saw it with the loaves, and if, if they would have known that Jesus, the one that they've been walking with for the last however long, if they would have known that he is the Son of God, then they wouldn't be scared of the things that the world has to throw at them. When they're in distress, they'd be able to say, all right, 
we, we trust our Savior. He's coming. He's over there in the land. He'll, he'll get over here eventually. We're good. But they were absolutely terrified. And then they were astounded because they thought, wow, this guy, like, he's some kind of miracle worker. They still didn't quite understand that he was the son of God. They thought maybe he was above typical human, maybe prophet status, where he's able to perform these miracles. But at this point in the Gospels, they still didn't quite understand that he was the son of God. And so one, a good takeaway for us is that we can easily be misled into thinking that just because we're impressed by Jesus, that we know Jesus. And that's not always the case. You can be impressed, you can be astounded by the work that Jesus has done as we look at the scriptures, and you can still not know who he is. So, know Jesus by pouring yourself into the scriptures, and don't just be impressed by him, but follow him and submit yourself to him and embrace what the scriptures say about him. So even though they've witnessed his miracles, the disciples still have a false understanding of who Jesus is. And it's easy for us to do that. We can, we can do that in one of two ways. So we can have a false understanding of who Jesus is, either by rejecting the, the true Jesus. So we see in scripture who he is. And maybe, maybe you see who he is, and you're like, yep, I see the scripture say it, but, but I just reject that. It's not what I believe. Or you can embrace a false Jesus. False idea. Oh, Jesus would never do fill in the blank because he's fill in the blank. So you have this idea of things that you would believe that Jesus to do. And it's a false idea because it doesn't take into account the full counsel of Scripture. So I encourage you that as this passes, we're trying to say it equips us and helps us to embrace Jesus for who he really is. We have to garner that from the word, not from just our own ideas. And so, the funny thing is that in this passage, the disciples who have been walking with Jesus, who have witnessed all kinds of miracles, they still don't understand who Jesus is. But then we see in verses 53 through 56, they come to the shore of Gennesaret, and they anchored there. And as they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him. Verse 55, they hurried throughout that region and began to carry the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. These people who have not been walking with Jesus, they've heard of him. They haven't witnessed all of his miracles, but they've heard of them. They immediately recognize him. And these people are not terrified when they see Jesus. In fact, they're ecstatic and they begin to go grab their sick and begin to bring him to his feet. They recognize him. They don't think he's a ghost. They recognize this is Jesus. And they pursue him with faith. They're running after him. They're bringing others to him. And in their faith, as they bring the sick to them, they're healed. So these people who may have been in physical distress, maybe through some type of sickness or some kind of disease, they are consistently healed as their faith is confirmed. And so Matthew Henry, who has written um, commentary on the whole Bible, highly recommend his commentary. It's very practical. He gives us four practical takeaways from this passage. First is this. He says that Jesus waited until after 3 a.m., which we've already covered, but says that though you may feel abandoned or distressed, wait on the Lord. You may be in a storm, you may be in a valley, you may be in a trial, and understand that just because you haven't seen deliverance yet does not mean it's not coming. Jesus waited until the fourth watch of the night. 
till very early in the morning. Number two, he came walking upon the waters. So when we see that, we see that God has gone through the greatest lengths and has walked through the greatest storms, not only to provide rescue, but also to reveal himself. He has gone. He has covered that distance, that separation there. He has covered the distance so that he can rescue us, so he can reveal who he is. Number three, he says to us, it is I, that ego I me. It is I, I your master, I your friend, I your redeemer and savior. It is I that came to a troublesome earth and now to a tempestuous sea to look after you, to look after you. We can have courage and we can have joy in the midst of the worst circumstances because we know that Jesus will not abandon us. He will walk with us through the storm. He will cover the distance when necessary. And here's the thing. He promises to never leave us or forsake us, and he never has, and I assure you, he never will. Number four, he said, ego, I me. I am he, or I am. It is God's name. When he comes to deliver Israel, it is God's name. And when he comes to deliver his disciples, it is God's name. So when Christ said to those in John 18, 6, when they first say, hey, this is, this is when he gets apprehended, when he gets arrested in the, towards the latter half of John. They, the Roman soldiers come and they say, hey, where is Jesus? And he says, it's I, I'm right here. And when he says that, you can see in John 18, 6, when he says that, the soldiers fall to the ground. They fall at his feet accidentally. However, when Jesus reveals himself to his people, he raises them up. When we consistently refuse who Jesus is, the true Jesus, there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And whether it's accidental or whether it's intentional, we will be at the foot of the cross. We will be worshiping at the feet of Jesus. However, if you are in Christ, he raises you up to new life. So this morning, as Jesus reveals who he is, we must respond appropriately. We must. The disciples were astounded by Jesus without truly knowing him. It's easy for us to be impressed by Jesus without actually knowing him. Pursue Jesus. Know that he is all-powerful. Know that he may even lead you into a storm. I've said this before, um, but growing up in the church that I grew up in, the pastor consistently said, if you're not right now in a storm, then it means you're either coming out of one or getting ready to head into one. Jesus may lead you into the storm for the explicit purpose of revealing to you more of who he is. Be prepared for that. But know that he cares for you and that he loves you. And then, we see that God will use storms in your life to reveal himself more clearly. So if you are in a storm, look for those moments where Jesus is using it to pass by, to reveal himself more. Keep your eyes open in the midst of a trial. And then know that we all fall short and we all need healing. And the people in this passage, they pursued Jesus at the end there, they, they recognized who he was and they brought all their people to him because they knew that he was the one who could bring healing. We all fall short. We all need healing. Where are you going for your healing? God is separate from us. We are distressed in our sin, but Jesus has closed that gap so that anyone who would embrace the gospel, anyone who would turn from their sin, 
would be saved. And that invitation is open to every person in this room. He has passed by, and we must respond accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful for the way that you see us in our distress and don't just leave us there. We're grateful that you have closed the gap, that you have made your way to us. We could not make our way to you, but you have come to us and you have calmed the seas. You have shown us who you are and we ask that we would respond with faith and with repentance. Show us this morning where we need to repent. Help us to recognize that repentance isn't a one-time thing, but it's an ongoing thing. And help us to trust the good news that any time that we confess our sin, you are eager to forgive. We thank you for that message. Be with us as we go from here. In Christ's name, amen.